0: Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am very excited to introduce my special guest today, Dominic Dobson. Dominic, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I am, Mark. Okay, it's great to have you here. Dominic made 65 starts in IndyCars between 1984 and 1994, including seven consecutive starts at the Indianapolis 500. He was cart rookie of the year in 1986 and was the fastest rookie in Indianapolis history in 1988. He drove numerous IMSA and other sports car races, including the 24 Hour of Le Mans, the 24 Hour Daytona, and the 12 Hours of Sebring in the mighty Porsche 962. He also raced for two years for Dodge in the North American Touring Car Championship, winning numerous races and finishing a close second in the championship in 1996. Dominic was an instructor at the Bob Bondurant School of Driving at Sears Point Raceway, he started Zephyr Racing in the mid '80s. After retiring from racing in 1998, Dominic presided over a multi-million-dollar collection of historic automobiles at the Cavalino Collection, and founded Motion Research Corporation. Currently, Dominic is the National Corporate Relations Director for LeMay, American's Car Museum in Tacoma, Washington. So, Dominic, I've told our listeners a little bit about your past. So, would you take some time and share a little bit about your history, your racing career? your interests, and your passion for automobiles.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to, Mark. Um, I guess my passion, like many other boys' passion, came from their father, uh, or I was first initially exposed to cars. Um, I grew up in uh, Capitol Hill, part of Seattle, and my father was an engineer for one of the Boeing subcontractors. And um, I always loved cars and used to uh, go on his Volkswagen Bug, and uh, also was a volunteer corner marshal out of Pacific Raceways back when it was um, called Pacific Raceways in, in those days. This would have been in the 60s. And so he used to bring me out to the track, uh, and I'd watch the likes of Mark Donahue and Peter Revson and Fulmer and Unser's and Andretti's race, things like Can-Am cars, Trans-Am cars, Formula 5000 uh, back in the 60s and, and even into the early 70s. So Uh, In those days, you know, even as a young boy, we could go in the pits and we could talk to the drivers and meet them and get their autographs. And uh, I remember um, taking rubber from the tires and getting my grubby little hands and rolling them into a ball and bringing them home, much to my mother's disgust. (laughs) Um, But that's probably what got me hooked. Uh, We discovered uh, go-karts in those days and I think we got our first car. It was a 1958 Sears go-kart with a Briggs & Stratton on it. Actually, it didn't have an engine on it. We got the engine separately. And I uh, put that thing together. My dad helped me. And we used to race up and down the alleyways behind our homes because the old homes had alleys. You know, the, the garages were always out back. And so that was a lot of fun. And I grew up, uh, you know, just doing that. And um, we brought that cart out to the track once because we heard there was a go-kart track, a racing track. And they kind of laughed at us when they saw that card, and they said, you know, this is not a racing card. This is a fun card. If you want to get a racing card, here's what you have to do. And they gave us the name of a guy out in North Seattle named John Fay who uh, was a dealer for Bug, I think, one of the cart manufacturers. And so we ended up getting a used go-kart. And um, after a couple of ill-fated attempts to make it run right, we we finally got out and did my first race. I think I was ten. And uh, so then I was really hooked at that point. I just started racing, and my younger brother started racing, and then my dad started racing. And so that's just what I did as a teenager. For me, school was all about getting through the basics and spending as much time as possible in auto shop and in metal shop. I ultimately built my own go-kart in metal shop and uh, used it to win the championship in 19, geez, 1975. And that was, you know, I was very proud of that. I ended up selling that cart, and I wish, like a lot of things in life, I would have kept it. It's probably long since gone or hanging from somebody's rafter in their garage in location unknown. But I was just, uh, you know, obsessed with racing. We did it almost every weekend in the summer, and then all winter I'd, you know, work on the carts and rebuild them. I got pretty good at rebuilding engines and ended up building engines for other people and, you know, met some friends that, oh, once I started driving cars, then we would just go to the races together, and ultimately, my dad kind of dropped out of racing, and he found it to be, you know, tough to compete, and my brother ended up deciding that he liked working on the cars better than driving them, so I kind of went back to racing solo again, and just did that, won a couple championships uh, back in the 70s, and then um, in those days, you had to be 21 to race sports cars. And I remember finding that quite frustrating. Canada in those days, there was a lot of racing going on in Vancouver. There was a great track called Westwood, and a track up in Victoria, uh, a couple of other ones spread around. And you could be 18 and race cars in Canada, but you had to be 21 here. Well, when I turned 18, they actually lowered the age to race cars to 18 here as well. So I didn't end up going to Canada. I ended up Uh, working for a shop out in North Seattle. So I went to work for a place called Sports Racing Center out on Aurora, sweeping the floor of the shop. I must have been 17 or 18. And uh, one of the guys in there bought an old Formula Ford, bought a Lotus 61, I believe, Formula Ford. Maybe it was a Lotus 19. I don't remember, and I get confused on it. But uh, he went out and raced his car once, and it scared the heck out of him. So he brought the car into the shop and said, you know, I want to race this car, but I don't want to drive it myself. Is there anyone around here who would like to race this car? And I just be, happened to be standing in the right place at the right time. And the fellow who owned the the shop at the time uh, looked at me and said, hey, do you want to drive a race car? And I looked at him like, are you kidding me? Of course I do. So I, I ended up basically driving this guy's car, Formula Ford, and uh, went out to Pacific Raceways and did my rookie uh rookie test, and or uh, my first race, my, they call it a novice in those days, and started racing there, and then you know, we went to Portland, we went to Westwood. Uh, I remember my very first race, I got in an argument with the team owner about how much gas to put in the car. He wanted to cut it close to save weight, and I thought, well, why don't we just put in an extra few gallons, because it doesn't weigh that much, and if it makes that much difference, then, you know, I'm probably be too slow anyway, so... He won the argument. I ran out of gas while leading on the last lap. Oh, no. And, and that was a good lesson for me in that, you know, never trust the car owner. <laughs> calculate your fuel. Uh, of course, in the later days, we had engineers that would do that. We'd, you know, calculate it down to the last cup. But in those days, it was a little bit of doing it by, by guesswork.
0: Take the ruler in the fuel tank and oh, that's good. Right, exactly.
1: So, um I ended up, went up, I ended up buying my own car. There was a guy named Pierre Phillips out of Portland. who's actually still around. And his son and I, Tom, became pretty good friends, and he raced a new Lola. Pierre was a dealer for Lola cars out of England. And they were very swoopy and modern and fast relative to the old Lotus that I had. And uh, he had a deal where he would actually guarantee a loan through U.S. Bank, and it cost $6. It was for the UCC filing, and then you made payments to Pierre. And he would co-sign the note. And he always knew where you were and where to find you. And if you didn't make a payment, he'd show up at your door. And that car, he had to be his car again. And so I ended up buying my first little race car. I think it was $11,000, which was a ton of money in those days. For uh, you know, I was 19. Made my payments. And in my, about my third race, I crashed it at Westwood. I tangled with a guy. Went off and hit a three, literally. Ripped the whole suspension off. And literally, before I would gotten out of that car, there was Pierre Phillips standing over me asking me, how I was going to make my next payment?
0: <laughs> oh my goodness! Wow, Guido showed up. <laughs> Guido was right there overseeing us.
1: Yeah, and I laugh about it now, but at the time, of course, it scared the heck out of me because I didn't know how I was going to do that. I'd first fix the car and make the payments, and you know, I didn't want to miss too many races. So I ended up taking a job selling real estate, and I actually made some money and fixed that car, made my payments, paid it off ultimately, and then raced that car for a couple of years. One of the guys I raced with in the early days there was a guy named uh, Bobby Carradine from the David, Bobby, and he had another brother, Keith Carradine, and we're all actors. The old Kung Fu show.
0: Oh, grasshopper.
1: And Bobby played, he played in a lot of the nerd movies. He was like the nerd guy and all kinds of comedies and things. And we had some great times racing together. Uh, there were some other guys that raced and were, you know, some who moved, moved up from cars, some had just gotten into cars. And, you know, it was great. It was just the way I spent my, my, my late teens and early 20s. And I was racing with a, a woman named Kathy Rood who got a job at the Von Rott School. School. Uh, she called me one day and she says, you know, we're hiring instructors. You should come down and interview for the job. So I did. I, I went down and um, that's a whole other story. But I ended up moving to California when I was about 22 and working for the Von Rott School and then kind of started my racing career. So
0: that's a, a wonderful start and gives a great story to the challenges uh, a young racer has to try to get into the sport. And, of course, things have changed dramatically nowadays. I love the story you started in your go-kart. I think I had the exact same thing. <laughs> From Sears, no less. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think I had a, a mini bike that had the same motor on it. We'd just swap oh, it out, good. put it on a mini bike frame. One thing we'd like to start with, it, Cars Yeah, is a success quote. And let's jump into that. Something that's been instrumental in forming your life, Maybe it's a quote or something that you heard from somebody. So take the wheel, Dominic.
1: Well, I guess there's a couple that that really come to mind. Probably the one that was a good lesson for me, and I I couldn't tell you who told me this, but they said in racing, the speed at which you go is dependent on how how heavy your wallet is. So just lay it on the gas pedal and see how fast you can. And the moral there is that it takes money to go fast. It takes money to buy the best equipment. It takes money to test. It takes money to develop into a, into a good driver because it's not a skill you're born with. Some drivers have inherently good reflexes. Some have great eyesight. Some are very brave. Some are very patient. But the reality is you hone your craft. You hone your skill. And it takes resources to do that. And That's probably the toughest lesson for all young race drivers is that it's that You have to have somebody to help support you, either your parents or relatives or sponsors or however you do it, or have to go out and make a lot of money yourself.
0: Well, that's a great segue into a question I always ask people is, how did you incorporate that saying into your life? So let's take it forward into your racing career because you started to move up in the ranks and race in some very serious racing series, the Indy cars and the Porsche 962s, of course. So how could you take that? that quote about money and how did you flip that into your professional racing career as you moved forward?
1: Well, I realized very early on that my father had a limited capacity to finance my racing. You know, back in the old days, I think, you know, I he paid for half of my first go-kart and I paid the other half from paper route money. And that was kind of our deal as we went along is he, he would do what he could, but I always had to participate. It wasn't just handed to me. And so I always worked I always had paper routes or I had you know, jobs sweeping floors or turning wrenches at, at a shop. And ultimately, I realized, you know, you can't make enough money sweeping floors or turning wrenches to fund a Formula Ford car. And so I decided I would try and do something that uh, would make me some real money, and that was selling real estate. So I got my real estate license when I was 18, went to work for a couple guys that had a place called West Coast Properties. Rainbow Land Company, that was it. And we used to go out and and sell land out in the rural uh, King County and Pierce County. And I did quite well. Uh, The money I made, of course, I poured right back into my racing. It was for tires or for engines or what have you. You know, at that point, my dad wasn't really participating anymore. I was on my own. Uh, I'd moved out of the house and, you know, had my own car and my own trailer and my own tools and everything. So he would come to the races and give me moral support and maybe, you know, help me work on the car. The, the lesson there for me was that if you don't have, you know, a relative or a sponsor, uh, you have to pay for it yourself. I think I approached some local companies uh, when I was racing my formal Ford and said, you know, can you help me with a set of tires or can you help, you know, put a paint job on my car or what have you and was able to start my kind of selling career at that point as well. And I learned how to fundraise. And, you know, here I am 30 some years later in the fundraising business, you know, working on corporate sponsorship, so I, I probably got my start doing that. And I've never forgotten that because in every race team that I've had, whether I own the team or whether I drove for somebody else, I was always able to hear some type of sponsorship to, to make it happen, either from uh, an individual who wanted to just live vicariously through me and be part of the team and you know own the car, be part of the functioning team, or a company that actually wanted to get some visibility on the car because we had television exposure. Some drivers have the luxury of not having to worry about that, and some drivers have to worry about it a lot. And For a lot of young drivers, particularly now because it's gotten so expensive, it's a, it's a roadblock, and they can't get past it.
0: That's great. I appreciate you sharing that. Is there a moment moving back in time when maybe share a story with us that instigated a, your passion for cars? Tell us about that pivotal moment that made you an automotive enthusiast and how it's enhanced your life?
1: Well, I think probably the one thing that happened, which I'll never forget, was, and this was a little bit later, I had already started to race go-karts. I wanted to race cars desperately, but I didn't quite know how to do it. So I wrote a letter to some of the famous Formula One drivers uh, of the era, because in those days, of course, we didn't have email, we didn't have texting. So you wrote a letter. So I wrote out a letter longhand. I, one of the letters I sent was to Jackie Stewart. And I said, you know, I'm a young race uh, go-kart driver in Seattle, Washington, and I want to be a Formula One driver because that's I was obsessed with F1. Watched every race, and I wanted, to, I wanted to race in Formula One. So I just asked him, you know, how I would go about doing that. What was his advice? And, of course, most of the drivers never wrote me back, but Jackie Stewart did. And somewhere here in my boxes of stuff, I have that letter from Jackie Stewart, and I remember being so excited when it came in the mail. My mom told me you have a letter from England, and uh, I knew exactly what it was. I didn't know who you know which driver it was, but then when I opened it and read the letter, and it was very it was typewritten, typed out by his secretary. I'm sure he dictated it. There was little initials down at the bottom, and he signed it, and it was just basically encouraging me to do whatever I needed to do, work hard, stay in school, drive fast, keep your nose clean, all those kinds of great advice things. And that was a pivotal moment for me. That was, made me realize that I could do it if I wanted to. And it was really up to me to make that happen, that no one else was going to do it. He was not there to lend a helping hand or send me money or give me a test ride in the Terrell team. But it was words of encouragement, and he said, if you want to do this, you will figure out a way.
0: That's a wonderful story, and it is really telling to everyone that when some young person reaches out to you and they're trying to follow in your footsteps, is take a few moments and offer them some advice. It doesn't take very long, and it means so very, very much, as in your case was probably, or it is that pivotal moment where you went, wow, Jackie wrote me back. And you still have that letter in your box, like you said, somewhere. So uh, I always encourage everyone, if a young person reaches out to you, take that time. Give them a phone call. Write them a letter. These days, whatever way you want to communicate, it's so important to them. So what a great story. Dominic, at this point, I want to kind of get under the hood a little bit and take a look at your journey and the roads that you've driven down and, and maybe get our hands a little dirty. Would you share with our listeners a huge challenge, maybe in a failure during your racing career where you were ready to just throw in the oil rag, as they say, and say, I'm done with this. And what pushed you past that breaking point to help you overcome that situation?
1: Racing is full of disappointments in many ways. I have a saying that I would say that at the end of every race weekend, there is one happy set of people, which are the team that won, and 32, in the case of the Indy 500, where there's 33 starters, 32 sets of unhappy people in varying degrees, and often the most unhappy people was the guy that finished second, and the guy that finished 10th may have been really happy because he never finished better than 18th before, but generally speaking, at the end of every race, there are more disappointed drivers and teams, than there are happy ones, because only one guy can win, not like a drag race, and of course, I'm talking about sports car racing and, and oval track racing, which is what I did, so... When I went to Indy for the first time, it was in 1987, we had, now that I look back and think about it, a really ragtag team. We bought a car, which was about a three-year-old Mart. It was an ex-A.J. Foyt car, and we, you know, managed to get an engine and a couple sets of tires, and I think it was the lowest budget Indy effort that, you know, anyone had seen in years. And I was a rookie, gone through, did my rookie orientation. We had what, literally one engine and several sets of tires. And we were already kind of running out of money. We did minimal practice laps, but I was able to get up to speed. And then in qualifying, I qualified at a 200, just right at 200 miles an hour. And it was a hair-raising experience. I'd never really gone through qualifying. Qualifying at Indy, for the benefit of your listeners that haven't watched it, is four laps around that place, 16 turns. 10 miles, and uh, basically you have to go flat out if you want to qualify for the field, or you, you really can't lift off the gas very much at all, and you have to drive the perfect line, conditions have to be good, and you, that has to be the fastest four laps you drive all month. And you, you're literally there for a month practicing. So I was able to qualify, get in the race. I'd never gone over about 196, 197 in practice, and I did a 200 mile an hour average. And uh, it was frightening, but I did it. And I remember just being so relieved and um, that, that we were able to do it, but we'd used up the engine, we'd used up our tires, we had really no money left for anything. We were eating at White Castle because the hamburgers were like 19 cents. That, that was the lunch and dinner at the track, and I think there were like six of us sharing a room, the cheapest cockroach hotel in <laughs> Indianapolis, one rental car we all piled in, and, and all volunteer help. I wasn't paying anybody. However, if you qualified for the race, you made about 120 dollars or $130,000, so that was what was gonna pay us. Once we got through qualifying and we were in the race, then we could go basically borrow money against what we knew would be a minimum of last place prize money. There was people who would do that for you because they knew you were gonna get paid. You could just literally take the green flag, pull in the pits and you get your money. So we were getting excited as qualifying you know, drew to a close. We had no no bullets left in our, you know, we, we couldn't go out and make another run. And with about 10 minutes left to go on the final day of qualifying, somebody bumped me out. Oh, no. Thirty-third in the field, somebody bumped me out, and there was no time to do anything, and I had no, like I said, no no bullets left. And so we went home, and it was a really gut-wrenching experience. We went from, you know, 15 minutes to go thinking we were in, we were golden, we were going to get all this money, everything was great, to the most deflated, dejected group of people. It would, would have been easy to just quit at that point, to say, you know, I'm hacking I'm and I can't do this. This is emotionally too much of a roller coaster. You know, i am in debt up to my ears having done this. But, you know, you, you just can't do that. If you want to be a successful racer or, or anything in life, you have to have perseverance. So that was a great lesson for me. And you do soul searching all the way home. Of course, we didn't fly out. We drove out with a truck and trailer. so It was a long, quiet drive home. But by the time we got home and, you know, a couple of days went by, we were already planning uh, our,
0: our next race and how we are going to recover. Well, that's great. You just uh, persevere. That's, I've heard that from from many people, and especially racers. Dominic, let's shift gears and go to the other end of the spectrum and share a story. When you had an aha moment in racing, uh, that time when you realized that this is really going to work, I, I can actually do this for a while, maybe take the steps of how that aha moment turned into your racing career and your success?
1: Well, I guess the aha moment would have been literally two years later, or actually just a, a little over a year later, when I went back to Indianapolis and, uh, again, had my own team. we have gotten some support from a company called Columbia Helicopters down in Portland, Oregon, who was, it was founded by my uncle. And so they were able to uh, give us a little bit of sponsorship. And we went back and qualified for the race solidly uh, as the fastest rookie in history. So I went from getting bumped out one year, being the fastest rookie that ever driven around that track the next year. And as a result of that, um, I was approached later on in the year. And I had a pretty good run. The engine blew up with about, I think, 30 laps to go, which happened to me several times at Indy. But um, there was a guy named Bruce Levin who was watching that race, and his crew chief, Walter Gerber. And he approached me a little after the race and said, um, you know, we need a driver. We have Texco as a sponsor. They want us to run a limited series of IndyCar races and a limited series of uh, races in our Porsche 962 and IMSA. And how would you like to uh, become our driver? And I said, sounds good to me. And so um, they actually bought all of my equipment, And um, started paying me to drive race cars, and so for me that was the turning point. And I thought, you know, I can actually get paid to do this. All this work, all this, all this money that I spent and earned, and you know, debt I went into and paid off, and you know, and I wasn't, I didn't have much of a life outside of racing. You know, I didn't have a girlfriend, I didn't have a house, I didn't have much of anything. I can have my car and my apartment, and you know, my my world of racing. And now all of a sudden I was getting paid. Healthy six-figure salary to drive race cars, and all my job was just to not go out and get sponsors, not work on the car, to stay in shape, and to drive a race cars. All of a sudden, now I thought, "Geez, this is great!" And I bought a house, and I started training every day, and riding my bike, and running, and and that was my job. And I'd show up, and I'd test, and then I'd drive, and then um, you know, go to corporate functions and wear the Texco shirt, and you know, be their spokesperson, and that was. Looking back a year and a half prior where I was just in this indebted state of dejection to being on the highest high a year later, that was a great moment.
0: Well, as they say, that's racing, and it certainly is a lot of highs and lows. So what a great aha moment for you, and it was like a dream come true after all that work. It really was. And racing with Bruce Levin, we could do a whole show about him.
1: Oh, love Bruce. Bruce was a dynamic individual, quite a character. Uh, was not afraid to speak his mind
0: of course in fact i uh, i called him to wish him a happy birthday last week and i want to get him on this show so i'll have to tell him that you and i talked if you get him to sit still for half an hour (laughs) right That's, (laughs) that's good luck that's going to be my challenge dominic what was your your first car and can you tell us a little bit about any kind of fun you had with that car modifications adventures memories
1: Okay, let me check with my attorney real quick to see what the statute of limitations is. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. No, my very first car, believe it or not, was a 1958 Hillman. Hillman? A Hillman, yeah. Now, many of your listeners aren't going to know what a Hillman is, but it was probably the English equivalent of a Yugo. It was this just crappy little car made out of tin, and it had a little four-cylinder engine in it. I bought the car... From some guy in Capitol Hill for seventy-five bucks when I was fourteen, and my dad thought this would be a great project for me is to get this car, and it didn't run, It hadn't run in a while, and so he thought it'd be a great project for me to get this car running, uh, because I was very mechanically inclined. I was working on all my own carts, and you know, I was in auto shop in school and all those things. So I remember it took me about a year and a half to get that thing going. You know, got it, got it running, and I had been. So- <laughs> My very first day, I got my driver's license, and I went out with four of my friends, which is all that car would hold, um, three in the back, two in the front, and we were in Old Bellevue by Main Street there, and there was a place where if you hit it fast enough, the road dropped away. It was kind of the, the top of the hill, and you could actually get airborne, and so we thought this was a brilliant idea that we should get airborne with the four of us and this Hillman. So we hit that thing about 45 miles an hour, and right at the moment of liftoff, when we probably had a foot of air underneath our tires, I saw the cop sitting on the side of the road with his radar. <laughs> Uh-oh. So literally, he said he got me at 46 and a 25 wall in the air. Oh.
0: <laughs> so he didn't
1: know what to ticket me for, because there was no, nothing he could cite me for for being off the ground. That wasn't actually against the law.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. So
1: I got my very first ticket on the very first day I had my driver's license, which happened to be my 16th birthday. A high and a low, all mixed into the mud. Um, but about a month later, because I've been racing go-karts, and we always, of course, premixed our oil and gas. So we never had oil in the engines. We just put it in the gasoline because they were all two strokes. So I kind of overlooked the fact that you had to check the oil in this car. And I remember driving back from Bellevue once late at night, and the engine seized up just at the end of the I-90 bridge. And I got stuck. And I'd, call, I'd go find a pay phone, call my dad, and have him come pick me up. And that was the end of that car. I think we voted yes. home and then decided to just
0: bring it to the wrecking yard or something. That's quite a first car story. Thanks for sharing that, flying through the air on your 16th birthday. I would not, I would not encourage anyone else to do that. Of course not. No, we don't endorse that here at Cars, yeah. No. Dominic, what was your most memorable race?
1: Um, well,
0: I would have to say probably torn between
1: two. I think my most memorable race was winning the Light race at Mid Ohio, uh, with a guy that had hired me side and scene. He'd heard about me from someone I was racing indie cars at the time before I was before I went to work for Bruce Levin, so it must have been in eighty six or eighty seven maybe. And a guy named Charles Morgan. He had this uh, camel lights car he was a pretty good driver but he hadn't won a lot of races i don't think and he asked me if i would come drive with him and he was tall he was probably six foot six maybe or five anyway and of course i'm a short little guy and uh he drove the car first and was kind of back and i don't know when he handed me the car where we were but we were back in the field a bit I got in the car, and of course, I had to put a huge seat in the thing to get myself close enough. So, a pit stop took a long time. And when I went back on the track, um, I was behind and ended up having a great run and uh, passing everybody and winning the race.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. What fun.
1: I, I've never seen a happier guy at the end of that race when he came and gave me a big hug, and I thought he was going to break all my ribs.
0: <laughs> that's a great one. Dominic, is, is there a current project you're working on right now that really has you excited and fired up?
1: Well, of course, I've been with the LeMay America's Car Museum now for seven years, and that was, you know, I guess that's the current project in that I, I joined the team for, long before the museum was built and was part of the, part of the well, a couple of us that raised all the money to get that museum built. Our CEO, President Dave Madeira, and myself were the only fundraisers and uh, managed to, uh, over the course of about four years, mainly through David's efforts, but I like to think that I helped uh, a lot, and uh, we got, got the museum built, and it's opened now, it's in Tacoma next to the Tacoma Dome, where we just celebrated our second year anniversary last weekend, and uh, it's been a, a great and fun project, you know, it's an up-and-operating museum now, so uh, it there are different kinds of challenges, but you know, we overcame a, a big hurdle, a lot of people never thought that thing would get built, that's been a lot of fun, where that ends, I don't know, I'm, I'm happy there, uh, I, I like that Whole project, and it was fun to see it, but it's different now than it was. It's it's an operating museum as opposed to a project, and I kind of like projects. I like starting things and seeing them grow and, you know, seeing what they can turn into. I always have a few little projects in mind. I have a couple races I want to go do, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute.
0: And I'll tell the listeners, uh, if you want to visit a really fun museum and you're in the Seattle area, or go to Tacoma, to the LeMay Museum, it is spectacular. I was there a few nights ago and saw you at an event uh, for the 50-year anniversary of the Mustang. That was yep. great fun. So uh, I've been there many times, and it's really an enjoyable museum to visit. It's an amazing collection of cars. So make sure you stop there next time you're in the Pacific Northwest. Dominic, we're in a part of the show now that I like to call the last lap. And this part of the show, I have you give me quick blip of the throttle answers. So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. What was holding you back from becoming a racer? Well, it was money. I think plain and simple. It wasn't a lack of desire or, or any fear on my part. What was the best racing advice you ever received, and who was it from? It was from a driver,
1: and a driver that I got to know quite well when I was young. His advice was very simple. Don't look back.
0: There's a great quote by Ayrton Senna, the past is is just data, I only see the future. Same idea. Can you share with us one of your personal habits that you believe contributes to your success? I, I try to persevere.
1: I try to not take no for an answer. I try to never give up.
0: That's great. Do you have a resource that you could share with our listeners that you're really fond of, maybe a website or restoration shop or something that would benefit an automotive enthusiast? I
1: guess there's many websites. I you know I have a passion for cars and old cars now. I've really kind of fallen in love with a lot of old cars. And so I tend to visit sites that have uh, old cars. And I, and I buy and sell and broker some cars from my own website as a sideline. And I put on events. And so I probably, you know, when I turn my browser on it, it my work one goes to the LeMay Museum dot org and my home one goes to dobsonmotorsport.com Two websites i probably spend more time on than any is that a shameless plug
0: not at all in fact we'll make sure we put those up on your show notes page so people can find both those those links is there a, a book maybe that you've read recently that you'd recommend to our listeners
1: well of course uh, most of your listeners have probably already read the art of racing in the rain but i just thought that was one of the greatest books ever that i've read about racing
0: All right. Well, now we're up to the checkered flag, which I know you like checkered flags. Every racer likes checkered flags. So this is the last question. Only if you're leading. Only if you're leading. Absolutely. (laughs) We'll, We'll put that quote up there as well. So, Dominic, this last question can sometimes be a challenge for a car person, a car fanatic like yourself, and it's a real doozy. If you could have only one collector car in your garage, something that you couldn't sell to buy other cars with, what would it be and why? And the gears are turning.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, I have my favorite car, and I have the privilege of driving the car, and I have a picture of myself. I have very few pictures of myself driving race cars on my wall. I have a few, but the one that hangs, I'm looking at it right now, it's a 1957 Ferrari 315s, winner of the 1957 Miglia. Oh, beautiful. And it is a spectacular, fabulous car that sounds as good as it looks, and they only ever made one. There's only one on the planet. And that's where I'd want my garage.
0: Okay, there you go. Well, Dominic, you've taken us on a great ride today, and I've really enjoyed your stories. I want to thank you for sharing your journey with our listeners and with me. If you could give us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset and let our listeners know the best way they can get a hold of you, and then we'll say goodbye.
1: I would say to your listeners, if, if you want to go racing, put your foot down and don't look back.
0: <laughs> that's great. And we'll make sure that we post the LeMay and Dobson Motorsports, is that correct?
1: dobsonmotorsport.com.
0: Okay, we'll make sure we put that up. Listeners, you can find all these links we've talked about here today at slash Dominic Dobson. You can listen to this interview there and read a little bit more about Dominic. So, Dominic, I want to thank you for being so generous with your time and your expertise and sharing your story with us. Until we talk again, we'll see you down the road. Thank you, Mark.